Hello, friends. Have you noticed how much podcasts have grown in popularity over the past few years? We definitely have, and it's insane. We have an opportunity for your business to take advantage of the exponential growth of our podcast by advertising with us. We've been riding the podcast growth wave for a few years now, and we want you to take advantage of this too. We have unbeatable pricing and advertising packages, and we work with you on an individual basis to produce the most effective ad possible for our audience. If you would like to advertise with Forbidden Knowledge News, email me, forbiddenknowledgenews at gmail.com. We look forward to all our new partnerships. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew, and I want to welcome to the show an awesome guest, Mr. Tim Schwartz. Tim is an Emmy Award-winning television producer, uh, photojournalist, author of several books. Tim, thanks for joining us tonight. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Chris. Thanks for uh, having me on tonight. Oh, awesome, awesome. So uh, I'd like to start with a topic that seems to be blowing up right now, uh, the UFO phenomenon. Uh, we're seeing more of this in the mainstream now, uh, you know, Pentagon releasing files. What are your thoughts on this? Are we in for some kind of disclosure soon? Oh, no, of course not. <laughs> uh, everybody, everybody always thinks that there's going to be you know, some kind of disclosure or, you know, finally the president is going to reveal that you know, the aliens have been here. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to happen that way. You know, I think that there has probably been, you know, like a slow trickle of disclosure over the years. Um, but nobody is going to come just right out and and say that hey you know we've been lying to you all these years and ufos are real uh i think one of the reasons that you know there has been this whole uh, secrecy about ufos uh, is that they you know the government military you know uh, insert favorite group you know here yeah has known that the UFOs are real, but they don't know what they are. Uh, you know, I, 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 I really doubt if there is this like vast secret knowledge about the origin of UFOs and some kind of, you know, secret repository in area 51 or under right, Patterson air force base. I think that they're aware that they're real, but they have no idea what they are. And they're never going to admit that because that really would create a panic. I mean, can you imagine if people found out that our government and our military has known for years that we've got something flying around in our skies with impunity and we can do nothing to stop it. That's kind of a frightening scenario. Yeah, it is. And on the other hand, I think a lot more people are kind of open to it now. A lot more people are becoming open to it. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, yes, definitely. Well, look at pop culture. You know, pop culture has played a really big role into uh, uh, putting that mindset in us. I mean, I know when I was growing up as a kid, uh, and, uh, you know, you as as well probably, I mean, you know, uh, you had these cartoons that, you know, featured, you know, aliens and, and uh, I think a lot of people nowadays, especially you know, maybe not so much uh, uh, baby boomers and, and the older generations, you know, but the kids that you know came after that, I think a lot of them would be surprised uh, if, if somebody says that you know aliens don't exist. You know, I think a lot of people just kind of take it as a matter of fact that uh, uh, you know, on, on the reality of, of extraterrestrial life. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, there, uh, there, there is this uh, a, a pop culture uh, attribute to the whole uh, reality of UFOs that's been playing for a number of years. Was that, was that deliberate? You know, I mean, did you know, somebody in power actually put that in place 50 years ago to, you know, like uh, slowly work its way or, you know, was it uh, just a pleasant accident? You know, maybe a little, you know, from column A, a little from column B. Right. Yeah. And it seems, you know, going back it's way to our beginnings, you know, it used to be angels and demons and now it's aliens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, would you say that these are more of interdimensional beings rather than maybe just little green men possibly you know i i always avoid saying i believe this or or i believe that uh because that tends to then put you in this uh, uh, uh kind of like a headlock <laughs> into a belief system where you'll then, you know, you get so uh, uh, ingrained in it that uh, you'll absolutely refuse to listen to any other kinds of explanations or, or, or new evidence. But, you know, it, that has been one of my favorite theories for a long time, that we're not dealing exclusively, at least, uh, with extraterrestrials or just simply, you know, nuts and bolts spaceships coming from, from other planets. I think, I think the UFO phenomena probably is a lot stranger than, than we, really than, than we could even conceive. You know, I mean, it could very possibly be that, you know, some parts of it are uh, extraterrestrials, but I think that there's this other aspect of it that, for want of a better term, uh, you know, could be paranormal or, or interdimensional or you know, I don't know if we really have the words to, to accurately describe it. Uh, let's just say that I think that we are dealing with some other intelligence or some other non-human intelligence that has interacted with us probably from the beginning of time. And that intelligence has taken on 
all kinds of, of different forms. Like you said, you know, at one time we believed in angels and demons or, you know, fairies and leprechauns and things like that. And, uh, and, and whatever this intelligence is, it seemed to be more than happy to take on that persona, to take on those forms. Well, now we no longer believe, you know, or at least you know, most people don't believe in like angels and demons or fairies and leprechauns, uh, but we're more than willing to believe in uh, uh, little gray aliens from another planet. And wow, surprisingly enough, whatever this intelligence is, it takes that form. Uh, does it take this? Does it, does it take these forms deliberately, or is there some kind of interplay, you know, between human consciousness and whatever this? You know, whatever they are, you know, that's uh, that's probably the, 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 the billion-dollar question there. Yes, right. And you, you hear stories where, you know, they can actually communicate through the mind and, and uh, you know, affect matter and, you know, materialize and all these things. And based on your research, would you say that most of these encounters that people come across are more malevolent or benevolent? Hmm. Well, once again, uh, you know, if, if you go and search just entirely for, uh, say, like, you know, UFO hostility uh, cases, which, uh, by the way, that's a new book that uh, uh, myself and Timothy Green Beckley and Sean Castile has uh, just uh, put out re recently, um, then, yeah, you, you know, you're going to find just all kinds of, uh, of cases that have had, uh, you know, you know, not so happy run-ins uh, with as many uh, where people have come away uh, with uh, uh, happier experiences with, uh, you know, feeling like that maybe that they have um, um, had a, a transient experience that uh, would almost, uh, you know, some people would almost call it a spiritual um, uplifting, which, you know, I, you wouldn't think that uh, astronauts, say, from another planet would be able to induce that sort of reaction uh, to a, uh, a, a local population of, of another planet you know, being, being Earth. So, you know, it's, uh, again, we're kind of back to this, uh, are we dealing with an intelligence that is that transcends uh, time and space, or at least our own uh, reality? Uh, but, um, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like you said, I mean, uh, there are uh, a number of really fascinating, if not downright terrifying cases of, of people that have been uh, uh, physically harmed uh, uh, by UFOs, maybe accidentally uh, coming too close to a landed craft or something like that. Uh, there have been cases, especially uh, South America has a lot of cases where people would run across, say, like a landed UFO, and the occupants would come out and physically attack uh, uh, the humans close by. I mean, there, there was a number of cases where these things seemed to have almost like a, a Wolverine for the you know, Marvel comics where they had like a, a, a sharp, almost metallic types of claws and just would, you know, uh, 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 just rip the <laughs> rip the hell out of these people and leave them with uh, just really horrendous uh, injuries 
we we don't see that as much here in uh, the United States, uh, but uh, especially Central South America. Uh, there's been some cases in Africa like that. Uh, uh, they seem to be more predominant for whatever reason uh, in those areas. Wow, that's fascinating. And now speaking of contact, you know, through the ages, I have always been fascinated with the stories you hear of the Nazis having contact with off-world entities or being helped by off-world entities. Uh, can you talk a little about that and uh, maybe how that relates to um, some of the secret space program? Mm -hmm. There, in the early 1900s, there was a secret society that operated in uh, Germany and Austria, uh, uh, those areas that um, they referred to themselves as the Vril or the Vril Society. And this was taken uh, from an early science fiction book that, uh, that these people felt uh, uh, really, even though this was a novel, they felt that uh, a lot of the, uh, the aspects of this book uh, were possibly you know true to life and that the, you know they should uh, try to, to to emulate the characters and the philosophy that was that was in this book and right now I can't remember exactly what the name of the, the title was <laughs> uh, I just uh, I, I just, I just remember that uh, you know in in this book the uh, um, uh, uh, the the occupants of this 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 land use the type of energy that they called vril so the real society, the real real society that that operated in uh, uh, in, in Germany, were also um, they employed uh, uh, spiritual mediums, people who uh, uh, women especially who claimed that they had the psychic abilities to uh, talk with spirits angels, ascended masters, you know, whatever you would want to call them. Uh, they eventually said that they were getting communications from a, a race of extraterrestrials that, uh, that lived in a solar system, um, you know, outside, uh, uh, with, with, uh, within our own galaxy, but uh, definitely not in our solar system, and that uh, they were being channeled uh, scientific information, some of the scientific information, including uh, designs to develop um, uh, anti-gravity spaceships. Uh, an offshoot of the Real Society uh, that was called uh, the... Uh, uh, I want to say full. I'm never going to pronounce that correctly. You know, somebody who who speaks German would probably uh, have a better um, uh, uh, grasp on how the name is pronounced. But say like or tool, it may be pronounced like the Tool Society, T H U L E, uh, which was a branch. Uh, it was like a schism from uh, the Vril Society. 
both of these groups claimed that they were in communication with uh, with extraterrestrials and that they were in the process of uh, of using uh, scientists and engineers and this was all later uh, brought in to the Nazi party because the Nazis were extremely interested in uh, occult practices and so with the help supposedly of these extraterrestrial creatures they set about trying to actually um, build these spacecrafts, trying to use the technology that they had available to them at the time to see if the scientific principles, you know, because, you know, they were dealing with things that were really, I mean, completely outside of our uh, uh, knowledge of physics, you know, by this time, you know, Einstein and a lot of other scientists had been run out of, of Europe uh, because of the Nazis' uh, practices of, of, of you know, hatred of, of the Jews, especially. So uh, they were working with trying to develop a completely new type of science and physics uh, to, to humans. So now the story goes that uh, the Nazi scientists were able to take this technology um, and develop it quite a ways. Uh, but um, apparently there became a, a pretty intense dislike uh, with the Vril Society and the Nazis. I guess the Vril, uh, the, the women of the Vril, because th it was uh, primarily a, a matriarchal group. Uh, run by run by women, and they became pretty disgusted with uh, the direction that uh, the Nazis were taking with Germany. So there's a possibility that they may have actually had uh, had fed the wrong information to these Nazi scientists. Uh, maybe enough to get some results, uh, but not uh, the complete results. Some of the stories have it that uh, the Vril Society actually had their own side projects going on and uh, built their own successful uh, anti-gravity ships and, uh, and uh, with the help of, 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 of scientists and engineers who had the same uh, uh, loathing against uh, Hitler and the Nazis may have uh, reached the point where they actually uh, uh, fled the planet. Uh, now, this is the speculation on my part, because at, at some point, the Vril Society just kind of disappeared. Uh, they had played a predominant role, uh, especially within the occult uh, practices of the Nazi parties. Uh, there, uh, there were a number of, of, of notes and paperwork back and forth uh, between them and, and, and the Nazis. And then just all of a sudden, they just, it just stopped. It's just like they stepped off the face of the earth. Nobody has been able to find because, okay, naturally the the first impression that you would have would be like, oh, well, you know, the, the Vril probably just stepped on somebody's toe, toes and they ended up in a concentration camp someplace. But as far as anybody has been able to find, and of course the Nazis were meticulous record keepers. So if any of these people actually ended up in a Nazi concentration camp, there was no record of it. So some have speculated that they just got fed up with people and left the planet on their own. You know, uh, it's you know, it's 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 a fascinating story, and every time that uh, uh, I go back 
to it and start doing some additional research, I find something new. Uh, so, I mean, this is a story that uh, myself and, and Timothy Green Beckley and some others have been working on for a number of years, and the story isn't over yet, folks. <laughs> Are you ready to live a more free, healthy, and abundant life? Transform your yard into a food forest and create a system for self-reliance that's easy and enjoyable with our friends at Food Forest Abundance. No matter where you're starting from, you can become more self-reliant. And you can take your self-reliance to the next level by becoming a producer of your own food through growing and foraging. And learn how to turn your property into an income-producing source of economic self-reliance. They can help you get off-grid and learn what systems to employ for food, water, and energy self-reliance and live abundantly and in full connection with your property and what you produce. Click the link in the description to get started with your very own food forest and have your own sustainable source of livelihood and become self-sufficient with food forest abundance. Just click the link in the description to get started with your very own food forest today. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And what have, based on your research, what have you found um, about maybe their involvement in Antarctica? Well, definitely, uh, the uh, the Nazis were were fascinated with uh, Antarctica. You know, first of all, uh, because they saw it as a very good strategic location. Uh, you know, I mean, if uh, if you had a, a, a base in Antarctica, you know, you could use that for any number of of, of countries, especially in the uh, the southern hemisphere. Uh, in the early 1930s, they actually uh, asked uh, you know Admiral uh, Richard Byrd if if uh, he would uh, be willing to uh, uh, partake in uh, uh, an Antarctic expedition uh, for for Germany, but uh, he refused. Uh, you know, already at that time, you know, the the Nazis had a pretty bad reputation, even though the war had not started yet, even uh, even in Europe. So uh, they had some of their own. Um, now later on. Uh, in the early 1940s, Hitler became fascinated. And again, this is part of this whole um, occult tradition that the Nazis were embracing. But Hitler was fascinated with the idea that uh, uh, objects of religious power, uh, they, they approached that somewhat, uh, you know, in a fictional manner in the, uh, the first Indiana Jones movie, you know, Indiana Jones, right. uh, and, and the, uh, and the, the lost Ark. Uh, well, I mean, that was based on, on, on reality. The, uh, uh, the Nazis set out a number of different types of archeological, and historical investigations throughout the planet in search of relics that they thought possibly could hold some sort of supernatural powers that uh, would be uh, beneficial uh, for Germany. You know, they, they had this idea that there was a root race that, uh, 
at, at some time in, in prehistory uh, was the race that developed into, you know, what they called the Aryan race, you know, the all-white race. And they thought that this race had the abilities, uh, whether it be uh, spiritual, supernatural, religious, what have you, that was conferred to various kinds of, of you know, and I'll put quotation marks around this, holy objects. And so the Nazis wanted to try to get a hold of these holy objects because they felt that they belonged in Germany, first of all, and that if when they were all brought together, that this would create, you know, almost like a blessing from, you know, God or the, you know, whatever, you know, it's, it, it, it's really hard to say anymore just exactly, you know, what kind of deities that they believed in, um, uh, but, but they thought that these artifacts would, uh, would, would help them somehow. And Antarctica was one of these locations that they thought could possibly uh, either have a city or an entrance to an underground kingdom that may still have these um, uh, 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 the superior race, these these uh, lost Aryans, so to speak, uh, Tibet, the Himalayans, Nepal. They also set ep- expeditions to these places as well to try to uh, to to find holy artifacts, or even to try to find. Uh, these these people who may have uh, uh, went underground for for some reason. Wow! And you had mentioned Admiral Byrd, mm-hmm. and there's some fascinating stories that go with that. And for the listeners who may not be familiar, could you just briefly uh, give us an overview of Admiral Byrd? his flight, and maybe get into his secret diary, if you can. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, Admiral Byrd was probably one of the last great uh, explorers. I mean, he, uh, early on, he was became fascinated with uh, both the Arctic and the Antarctic uh, regions uh, of the planet, and uh, wanted to be, you know, at that time, you know, uh, he wanted to be one of the first people to actually, uh, say, uh, take an aircraft and uh, and fly over uh, uh, both the uh, the north and south poles. I mean, you know. We're talking about the early 1900s here, and uh, this this was a feat that hadn't been accomplished at the time. Uh, so, uh, Bert actually did uh, did claim that uh, you know him and his pilot were, were actually able to fly over the North Pole. Um, that claim has been disputed over the years, you know, and, and you know I'm not I'm not going to get into that now. But uh, you know, history basically you know still has it that uh, Bird was able to do that. Well, after his um, Arctic expeditions, he set his sights on Antarctica and had uh, a number of uh, Antarctic expeditions that uh, uh, explored. Uh, uh, a lot of area that had never been uh, seen before uh, by people. I mean, he discovered they discovered mountain ranges and, and islands and just you know all kinds of fascinating things. Uh, there came about, um, I think it probably came out in the late 1950s. This book that claimed to be Admiral Byrd's uh, Lost Diary. And in this, it was supposedly Admiral Byrd's 
uh, 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 recollections of a, a flight that he had made in 1947 over the North Pole where he was accosted, him and his pilot was accosted by uh, UFOs that, uh, that f- then uh, escorted uh, his plane into the hollow earth where uh, he met these uh, 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 uh People that same people that uh, the Nazis had supposedly been looking for, and uh, and was told that um, the inner Earth people were watching the surface world very carefully and were extremely worried about our use of of, of atomic weapons. Now, of course, this was 1947, and uh, they didn't. Re- I mean, we didn't re- have near the amount of atomic weapons then as we do do now and it's also it's very interesting because this was the same types of stories that came about in the 1950s from a lot of the early ufo contactees people like george damsky howard menger you know the 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 space brothers as they were referred to were very fixated on uh the development of our nuclear weapons and they kept saying that uh, uh, not only could we, you know, blow our own planet up, but it would have dire consequences for the entire entire solar system. Uh, the interesting thing about Admiral Byrd's diary is that the dates that he has written in this diary that he was in or claimed to be in the North Pole. He was actually on the opposite side of the globe in Antarctica uh, as part of a U.S. Navy operation called uh, High Jump, Operation High Jump. Right. Uh, this, this took place in uh, um, uh, the winter of, of 1947. Well, I mean, it would have been the winter in the northern hemisphere. It was the uh, summer uh, in, in, in Antarctica. So uh, the question is, was this book put out as a disinformation campaign to distract what was really going on with Operation High Jump? Uh, because the you know face it, I mean you know the the lost diaries of Admiral Byrd reads very much like some of these uh, uh, UFO contactee stories, uh, almost absurdly so. So I've I've speculated that whatever reason that Operation High Jump was going on in Antarctica, somebody wanted to keep the details of that secret. And one of the best ways to do it is to put out a story that is so crazy that anything else that comes about, people are going to go, oh, now, wait a minute. Isn't this the same guy that was associated with that Lost Diaries junk? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where he claimed that he saw, you know, like flying saucers from the hollow earth. So, you know, why would I believe then, you know, whatever story that you're telling me about that happened with Operation High Jump in Antarctica? Think about it is, is that we know for a fact that Operation High Jump did take place. There's that actually a documentary about it that was uh, filmed by you know the uh, uh, the, the military uh, uh, press department while it was going on uh, there were a lot of soldiers 
that were associated uh, with uh, Operation High Jump. I mean, because we're talking about this was something that had like maybe over 2,000 uh, personnel involved, a number of ships, an aircraft carrier, even a submarine. And this took place just right after the end of World War II, when shortly before this took place, the Navy was actually decommissioning ships. You know, they didn't need them anymore. The war was over. And then all of a sudden, they just turned around and said, hey, let's get all these ships back together again and send them to Antarctica, you know, with about 2,000 soldiers and personnel just, uh, oh, I don't know. Let's go see if we can make snow cones or something. You know, I mean, it's just, yeah, they, they said it was, it was um, they were going to look for, like, valuable minerals and, uh, and things like that. Later, they said that it was part of a training exercise um, in the event that someday, say, like, the Soviet Union would invade the United States uh, coming across, say, like uh, uh, Alaska and down uh, through Canada which a lot of people have said, well, why did you go all the way to Antarctica to do that? You could have done it right up there, you know, in Canada. It would have been a lot closer and a lot cheaper, too. And they're like, oh, well, uh, you know, we just, uh, <laughs> you know, that sort, of, that, that sort of thing. So um, it just, it leaves us with some really unusual stories about Operation High Jump, why they were there, what actually happened, you know, they were supposed to be down there for like six months, but they left after about six weeks claiming that the weather had gotten bad. They couldn't take it anymore. So they came home, you know, now, uh, okay. They, they did go during the summer, uh, the Southern, uh, Southern hemisphere summer. And even in the summertime, yeah, Antarctica, you know, can not exactly a pleasant place to live. Uh, but you know, they, they went there prepared for practically every aspect, but for some reason they pulled up and left early, and uh, you know we don't we don't know why, nor do we really have a good reason uh, why they were there. All kinds of stories, secret Nazi bases, uh, you know, uh, uh, looking for that you know that entrance to uh, uh, the hollow earth. I mean, you know, you can you can insert practically every kind of crazy story uh, that there's been around, and Operation High Jump was involved in it. Truth of the matter is, is that we just don't know. Right, we don't know, and you mentioned hollow earth. And I, I understand you've done some interesting research into Hollow Earth and that there could possibly be some connection to the JFK assassination. Oh, I wish I could. I wish I could give you a, a better um, a, a story with that. Uh, but but yeah, um, actually, uh, a, a good friend of ours, a guy by the name of Tim Crinlan, uh, 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 wrote just this fascinating article in in one of our books uh, about that, and um, gosh, I wish I really wish I could give you um, uh, the the complete details to that, but I really don't know that uh, that well. You know, I'll give you the synopsis that sure. uh, that I remember that that Tim had ha had come up with um, the. The family that um, um, uh, Admiral Byrd belonged to, okay, um, was also involved 
let me see if I can if I can remember this correctly. They were the owners of the book depository in Houston or Dallas, Dallas, sorry, in Dallas. And that they um, not only were they involved in that, but they were also involved with um, the oil companies that um, Lyndon Johnson was involved with. And there was just some very interesting um, political shenanigans, for want of a better word, uh, that, that Apple Bird was related to the owners of the book depository and and some suspicious um, money money's being sent back and forth shortly before JFK's assassination to other people who seem to have had some kind of involvement with this assassination. And like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you this explanation from uh, Tim Crinland's article really, you know, uh, goes into it a lot deeper than I do. Uh, but, um, but it just, uh, you know, it, it just, it just seems like that there is this interesting cast of characters um, um, involved in the sidelines with the whole JFK assassination that uh, kind of uh, 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 directly leads back to uh, uh, Admiral Byrd's financing, especially his later financing, uh, when it came to some of his uh, uh, later expeditions uh, to Antarctica, um, uh, one of the one of the interesting uh, parts of the story is that Admiral Byrd's son um, uh, had came out and had uh, actually had had publicly said that. Uh, he was going to look into whether or not the the, the groups of people, uh, the these oil tycoons, uh, who helped finance uh, his his father's expedition, whether or not they were actually um, also financing some of these uh, uh, groups that uh, may have had a vested interest in uh, in, in having uh, JFK assassinated. Well, when uh, I will. Bird's son, uh, uh, he was he was going to go to a, uh, a convention, and uh, he got onto a train and vanished. And a couple of weeks later, he was found dead in a warehouse uh, uh, somewhere. Uh, no, really, no physical. Um, uh, you know, wasn't shot, wasn't you know stabbed or anything like that. He was just found dead in a warehouse that. He shouldn't be there, you know, and uh, you know, and it's it, it, again, it's just one of these mysteries that seem to surround um, 
players of the JFK assassination. You know, somebody will come forward and say, you know, there there could be something going on here, and then they're dead. <laughs> so, like I said, you know, uh, uh, Tim Crinlan uh, uh, has done a, has done some really excellent research on this story, and uh, really can give it to you better than I can. That's you know, kind of the Reader's Digest version, <laughs> right? Okay, well, that's very interesting, very fascinating stuff. I mean, the connections you get from some of these things, and. Um, I, for the uh, second half of my show, I wanted to get into something that I'm also fascinated with, uh, Nikola Tesla. Mm-hmm. Now, there's so many mysteries surrounding him, um, so many fascinating stories. I'd like to get into maybe the, some of the lesser known stuff and uh, what happened to his works. Um, talk a little bit about that. Well, um, yeah, Nikola Tesla. Yeah, this 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 was a gentleman that I've been fascinated with for for years and years um you know when when i grew up when i was going to school um they never taught me about nikola tesla uh everything especially having to do with electricity uh here in the united states that was all uh thomas edison you know not only did thomas edison invent the light bulb but boy i mean you know he invented electricity uh and, and, and you know invented the whole grid system to get the electricity uh, uh, uh to you and, uh, and there was absolutely no mention of nikola tesla at all and in fact the first time that i think i i ever heard about nikola tesla was when um uh, i was a uh, a, a, a uh, worked at a television station at uh, in Dayton, Ohio, and one of the things that uh, that we did, uh, you know, every couple of weeks is that we'd go to uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base, which was close by, and we'd meet with the uh, slaves on there, and uh, they would provide us, you know, with some kind of interesting story uh, that that we could do. And, uh, and one day we were sitting there, and he was going through his files, trying to find something for us that uh, you know we could do do a story on. And he just made this offhanded remark. Uh, we said, you know, we're working on some stuff from that man scientist Tesla. But I can't really talk about that now. <laughs> and then he went on to, you know, went on to something else. And that name stuck with me. You know, that mad scientist Tesla. Who's that? Right. Never heard, never heard of him before. So, you know, using the, uh, the resources that I had available uh, uh, with, to me at the time, you know, stuff like the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Lexus Nexus, uh, which uh, was really only uh, available to reporters. And, uh, 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 libraries and universities, things like that. I was able to finally track down who Nikola Tesla was and ran across some of his uh, um, uh, biographies that uh, uh, people like Margaret Cheney and people like that had written. And boy, that, that just became, you know, like this, this life uh, lifelong journey for me, uh, learning more about this absolutely fantastic guy who was the inventor of the uh, the AC induction motor? Uh, he he invented and created our entire electrical grid system that we still use in the United States. It hasn't changed that much. Uh, a radio, 
you can uh, you can really uh, thank Nikola Tesla uh, for radio. Everyone in his elbow was Marconi. No, Marconi was actually using uh, Tesla's patents uh, for uh, uh, for radio to to make his devices work. Uh, cell phones, robotics, remote controls. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, the things that this guy in the late 19th and early 20th century worked on, invented, got patents on them. Uh, I mean, you could go as far as, uh, you know, he worked on something that he called the death beam, uh, which we would now call a particle beam weapon. And uh, he, he was working on this in uh, the uh, early 20th century and made his announcement about it in the uh, early 1930s. Uh, but uh, this was something that, I mean, it was so far ahead of its time that it wasn't until probably like the 1980s uh, that uh, the, the military was even coming close to getting a, a handle on what he was thinking about. Um, one of Tesla's big dreams was the, um, the wireless distribution of electricity. Uh, he figured out that uh, using both the, uh, the atmosphere and the ground that uh, you could uh, send electricity uh, to practically uh, any point on the planet you know, with, with the help of, uh, of other transmitters along the way uh, without wires. Uh, you know, that uh, if, if he had been able to finish his work, uh, we'd be able to be sitting in our house and uh, enjoy electricity, but uh, it would be getting to our houses without wires. You know, that was, that was his really big, uh, big dream. And then there was, you know, there was like, you know, a thousand other things in between <laughs> that yeah. Tesla was interested in and, and worked on. And I understand he may have had an accidental brush with time travel. Yeah. Um, when he was working in his uh, uh, laboratory in Manhattan, uh, and this was before, um, this would have been, I think, around 1896. 97 maybe i'll have to go back and, and look at this it was it was before his manhattan laboratory uh burnt down he was he was working with his tesla coil trying to produce well he wasn't trying he was actually producing uh, 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 uh rotating electromagnetic fields and uh he he reached over to grab something and the tesla coil arched now, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a Tesla coil operate, but uh, uh, it's constantly throwing off like bolts of electricity. And yeah. they, they usually, they don't travel very far. But every once in a while, especially, you know, if uh, you'll get an arc that'll travel quite a distance. And that's what happened to Tesla. Tesla got hit by one of these bolts associated with these uh, um, um, rotating electromagnetic fields. And so Tesla found himself then, um, as, as he described it, he said that he felt that he had been transported outside of time and space. Now, 
you know, he was still in the laboratory. I mean, he, it wasn't a situation where, like, he, he disappeared and then reappeared again because he had, you know, his assistants were right there. They saw the entire process. But to his perception, he felt like time had disappeared for him and that he could see, as he described it, the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. And that um, it, it, it actually, later in life, I mean, it gave him some really interesting ideas on how to uh, develop his own uh, unified field theory. But uh, in that, it really, it was just kind of like an instant, almost uh, just you know, a blink of an eye. He felt that, um, that, that time was not a real thing thing, at least not as we perceive time, and that by being outside of time and space, he could see the entire face of reality before him. Uh, and uh, now, uh, uh, if his assistant actually hadn't grabbed a two-by-four and, uh, and, and, and knocked him out of this arc of electricity, Tesla probably would have died uh, eventually, even uh, he was he was pretty well grounded, but you know he was caught and paralyzed, and eventually you know it just you know he 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 just would have fried. <laughs> you know wow. you, you stay in a field of energy that long, you you know you you would fry. So uh, his assistant, who was smart enough to know not to try to grab him himself, because then you know the the electricity would catch him up as well took a board, a two-by-four board, and, and hit him as hard as he could and knocked him out of this field of electricity. So Tesla, for the rest of his life, kind of took it upon himself. He developed an interest in um, cosmology after that point and, and really worked hard to, uh, uh, to develop his theories on how the universe worked. And this really stemmed from this one accident and how he said that he felt or how he saw uh, uh, the universe when he was in this field of electricity. And it's just, you know, it, it's really a fascinating story. And, uh, and like I said, later in life, it, it, it gives you some really good ideas on where he was trying to go with his idea on um, how gravity worked, how the universe worked uh, uh, on on not only large scales but on a microscopic you know what we now call the quantum level uh, you know Tesla was working on this you know up until the time that he died. He actually apparently had written quite a bit of, of this down uh, because he made references to it in uh, a number of magazine articles uh, unfortunately um, this this uh, uh, this amazing work that he was doing has never surfaced i don't know you know if if it was in you know like all of these uh, trunks and belongings that he had that were confiscated uh, by the government when he passed away or or what you know we just we really don't know yeah and it it just leaves speculation on what could uh, his files and his works be possibly being used for now I mean, most likely something clandestine, you know, our deep state, you would say, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, if um, uh, the FBI released in uh, starting in 2013, 
started releasing the files that they had on Tesla. Uh, they, they released the last bits in 2016. And uh, a majority of these files really are nothing more than letters that various people, scientists, even a, a general from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in the, uh, in the 80s, had written to the FBI journals were that they had heard that the FBI had uh, had seized them when he had died, and they wanted to know, you know where this material was. Well, uh, the FBI, even though that they had initially been involved, all of Tesla's works were actually uh, collected by the Office of Alien Property, uh, which is rather unusual because. Uh, Tesla had been a naturalized American citizen for a number of years, but still, you know, for whatever reason, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the OAP were the ones, uh, possibly with the help of, um, the OSS, the, you know, the, uh, the early version of the CIA to, uh, uh, grab whatever material of Tesla's that they could get a hold of and then hold it for a number of years a lot of it uh, was sent to places like Wright-Patterson, uh, uh, DARPA got a hold of a lot of it, um, uh, and then eventually uh, the material was released to Tesla's nephew, who was a uh, Yugoslavian diplomat, and it was sent then to uh, Yugoslavia, where it was um, part of the Tesla Museum that is now in, in Belgrade. The unfortunate thing is that a lot of this material that is being held in Belgrade is has never uh, they've never allowed Western scientists or you know journalists or or really anybody who's who's interested uh, from the United States uh, to look at this stuff. Uh, probably uh, the. The Soviet Union, you know, had had access to it. Uh, a lot. Uh, we have some really good evidence that you know the that uh, the Soviets were able to develop some some interesting uh, weapons uh, based on uh, Tesla's ideas, and you know, probably from these notes, I sincerely doubt though that the United States would have been dumb enough to release everything. Uh, uh, to Yugoslavia, uh, more than likely they they made copies, or or even retained uh, material that they felt that was too sensitive uh, uh, to release the, to the Soviet Union. Uh, somehow, though, a lot of this material uh, uh, did make it to them uh, because we've had reports that uh, uh, the Soviets had developed what we would call, say, like a Tesla shield, uh, which would be really like almost like a dome of energy uh, that uh, that could be placed over a strategic area, a city, a missile base, or something like that, that uh, would prevent aircraft, missiles, bombs from, from penetrating it. Uh, they also had... Um, uh, a working version of the Tesla's uh, death beam. There was a, uh, 
a, a satellite photograph taken of a base in Siberia that uh, I think this was uh, uh, released by uh, Jane's Technology, um, a, a drawing of this picture that was taken. And for all intents and purposes, it, uh, it is a Tesla-based uh, particle beam weapon. Now, uh, did the United States manage to build the same thing at some point? Who knows? I mean, we know a lot more about what the Soviets were able to do than what uh, our own military was able to accomplish. But uh, I dare say that if the Soviets were able to do it, then the United States probably uh, were able to do it as well. Right. Well, uh, speaking of, you know, clandestine operations and, and operations that we're not told about, we have time for one more thing. I'd, I'd like to ask you some of the theories that uh, you might have heard or come across about HARP. Oh, sure. Well, you know, HARP, uh, HARP hasn't been in the news too much uh, uh, recently. You know, they, uh, they, they've claimed that, oh, well, you know, we've, we've shut it down. And, you know, we're not interested in, in doing anything with it anymore. But, you know, uh, the people who monitor the frequencies that, uh, that, that, that HARP broadcast on says that this isn't true, that, that HARP is still in operation. Uh, but, uh, 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 you know, HARP uh, was this uh, interesting uh, uh, built in, up in Australia. Australia, <laughs> up in Alaska. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, completely, uh, completely different continent there. But anyway, it it, it was it was uh, built up in Alaska for uh, nobody really knows for sure what it was built for. Okay, it um, uh, as the paperwork that was used. Uh, the blueprints to, to, to build this array of antennas uh, with uh, uh, really powerful radio transmitters said that this was research into um, atmospheric heating, that if you could concentrate various freq radio frequencies at certain spots of the atmosphere, what would happen? You know, could you affect the weather? Could you use it to, say, communicate with submarines deep under the ocean? Could you use it to knock down missiles with? Um, the, the, the scientist who, uh, who first patented the idea of HARP, and I should add, he used his patent based on uh, Tesla's idea for the wireless transmission of electricity. His idea was that you would take this array and you would build it near the Alaskan oil fields uh, because it was uh, expensive and, and you know, possibly environmentally unsound to uh, use a pipeline to pipe this oil uh, clear across uh, Canada or wherever. His idea was that uh, you burn the oil right there, generate electricity from it, and then you could uh, transmit it using the HARP array to any place on the planet. And, you know, here would be this great abundant source of electricity uh, that uh, uh, made from uh, the burning of oil right there at the, at the oil fields. But uh, once various other corporations bought each other out, the, the military ended up with these designs. And then you had this, uh, this array just really basically like the original patent, 
but uh, nobody uh, really offered any good explanation on just exactly what they were doing with it. And so then you had a lot of uh, people speculating endlessly on uh, what they were doing with it. <laughs> and, and again, you know, it's, it's kind of these situations where, uh, you know, ham operators, you know, uh, amateur radio operators who, who monitor the frequencies that, that HARP operates on, you know, they, they're like, we have no idea what they're doing, you know, with this. Uh, some of these frequencies could almost uh, be used for um, mind control. Uh, you know, the, uh, the CIA MKUltra uh, experiments in the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s uh, specified that there were uh, uh, certain radio frequencies uh, that, uh, that seemed to have a resonant quality with uh, the human brain and that uh, under the right conditions, you could broadcast uh, uh, these radio frequencies, say, at a city uh, or a town, and uh, you, know, you could have all kinds of, of dangerous effects on the population. You know, you could uh, you could actually get them to uh, uh, commit, say, like mass suicide, or uh, uh, maybe broadcast a, a, a command uh, uh, to them to you know uh, get your guns and go out and start shooting each other, or things like that. Uh, the uh, uh, Recently, there's been these stories that have come out of uh, of Cuba. And China about, as well. Yeah, China as well. Right, right, where they yeah. claim that uh, they were being hit with, uh, with sonic uh, uh, weapons of some kind. No, those aren't sonic weapons. Those are radio frequency weapons that uh, uh, when people are hit with these things, you know, with these electromagnetic beams, it, it produces... Um, your brain interprets it as a sound. So that's why these people are, are saying that they're hearing things and why, you know, the press is saying, well, they're, you know, that maybe they're trying sonic weapons. No, they're Tesla based electromagnetic uh, weapons, possibly, uh, you know, for who knows, you know, I mean, you know, Russia was doing the same thing uh, to the American embassy in Moscow in the 1970s. They were beaming microwaves, you know, uh, of various frequencies uh, uh, at this embassy. And this stuff sounds suspiciously similar to uh, what they were doing, same frequencies on some of their experiments as well. Yeah, that's uh, that's crazy stuff. I mean, to the thought of the kinds of weapons and technology that they have that we'll never know about, but you know that they could be possibly using on us right now. It's it's you know fascinating and frightening thought at the same time. Oh yeah, well, uh, the, in the in the 1980s, there were um, a number of protests taking place in Great Britain uh, about the. Uh, uh, the stockpile of nuclear weapons that uh, the United States uh, was was keeping stored at various uh, 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 bases there in Great Britain. Uh, a number of protesters claimed that they were being hit by some kind of of radio, you know, electromagnetic uh, uh, weapons that uh, created all kinds of, of, of health effects, you know, on them. I mean, you know, they, some of them just had nosebleeds and headaches. Others had uh, brain hemorrhages. Others had uh, uh, just really severe uh, uh, depressive episodes. There was just this whole range of really interesting 
physical and mental effects that took place that sounded suspiciously like uh, the very same stuff that uh, uh, the CIA and the, and the military were experimenting on uh, uh, under MKUltra and uh, you know, and some of these other you know types of uh, of you know we don't know their names you know at this point again all this goes back to the uh, experiments that Tesla was doing and I'm sure God poor guy I mean he he would just be a goss to know that uh, people were using his ideas for this these kind of weaponries but this was stuff that Tesla was working on in the early years of the 20th century. And, you know, and we're now uh, just barely understanding the stuff that he was doing that far back. Yeah. And, well, we are living in fascinating times right now, and there is so much happening. And, Tim, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. That was some awesome information, and we'd love to have you back on sometime. And before you go, if there's anything upcoming you'd like to tell us about, anything you got going on, Oh sure. Well, um, yeah. If you want to find out uh, uh, more about uh, me, you can just uh, go to our website. It's conspiracyjournal.com. Uh, we put out a, a free weekly email newsletter. Uh, uh, just uh, sign up. You know, give us your email address. We don't spam you. We don't give it to anybody else. You just get our newsletter from it. Any of our books, any of my books, uh, Tim Swartz, Timothy Green Beckley all available on Amazon.com. Uh, I think we have like, you know, oh, I don't know what, five or 6,000 books out right now. I'm not sure. <laughs> I've lost track. Yeah. <laughs> but we've got a lot. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, you know, any, any of this stuff, uh, if you're interested in it, just uh, check out Conspiracy Journal, check out our books. Something for everybody. Yep, and I'm going to leave the links to all those in the description. Thanks again, Tim, and we will see you again soon. And good night, everyone.